I don't want to be the talking woman in the C-suite. I don't want to mm. be the talking woman CEO. I'm tired of being the only CEO woman on the CEO panels. So I think if I can help the next generation to make one mistake less or get something a little bit easier, that's the best legacy I can leave. Welcome to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast, where founders and business leaders talk about how they built a company culture that is so incredible, their employees brag about it. Our show aims to inspire you as you build a Bragworthy culture of your own. Culture building is philosophical and practical, and you'll find both discussed here. Grab a pen and a notebook. We're about to drop some knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us. Here's your host, Cassandra Rose. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast. I am your host, Cassandra Rose, head of people here at Fringe, and I am delighted to be joined by Ina today. Ina, thank you so much for agreeing to come on to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Cassandra. Yes. So we chatted a little bit before we got started. I think your story is magnificent because you are the CEO of not just one, but several organizations prior to this. And I know the path to CEO is not something you thought about since kindergarten. Possibly, maybe you did. So if you can share a little bit more (laughs) about your story and how you became CEO of Tools Group and what really led you to this part of your career. Thank you, Cassandra. No, I never dreamed of being a CEO in kindergarten or school or university. Because first of all, I grew in a country where there was no businesses of CEOs. I grew up in Russia. And I was groomed for all my life to be a scientist. So I studied math, which I loved. I was the only grandchild of my grandfather, the physicist. So he made sure I had differential equations in middle school and played chess, which is probably one of the best things you can teach the future CEO, but I did not know about it then. I sort (laughs) of just developed my ability to think several steps ahead. But I uh, graduated Moscow State University, summa cum laude, you know, did my PhD in online differential equations and had no other inspiration but to continue my life in math and teach students. And then Perestroika started. And of course, all the jobs in academia evaporated, the businesses came in, and I was lucky to land a role in IBM. And that was something mm-hmm. that changed my life for a very long time because on one hand, it was a very lucrative position at the time, 14 people per place, amazing salaries compared to the local market, but most of all, amazing training and amazing insights. I am very grateful for IBM at the time who put us through very advanced sales training. And whenever a manager became the first line manager for the first time, we were put through a very extensive first manager uh, training. And later when I became an executive, I got executive training. Since then, I appreciate how much the leadership may be a natural trait, but managing and managing second line and third line is an acquired skill. And we all need help in that skill. And that was a big thing. When I joined IBM, we had 60 people for six time zones. 
So we played wow. ball, like your team plays ball, right? Whoever's closest grabs the ball and go. And mm-hmm. I closed deals. I was technical pre-sales, but within the same year, I would have to install the system and explain technology to the customer and close the deal and manage national language support for one web rating systems because we really acted as this small startup with a big blue shadow behind us, right? We got mm. all the training and great products and best practices. And yet in our daily operations, we operated like a small company. And that gave me a great appreciation for what the country offices are dealing with. While the small companies' operations are very different from big company operations. Later, when I arrived to the U.S., I was surprised that there were thousand people with a broad strategy in their roles and that what I did in my small country market was done by five or 10 people because they developed much deeper expertise and divided the job in smaller pieces. And that was a great lesson of going from a smaller company to a bigger company, which also helped me later when I switched the other way. When the company grew and I became the head, the sales manager, the head of the public sector, And I moved to the U.S. in the very end of 96. I did not move on my own. I, because we were subsidiary of a subsidiary, I moved as a trailing spouse. And yet the first thing I did when getting home and landing in New York was calling everybody I knew IBM and saying, I have a work visa that only allows me to stay at home and cook dinners. Please save my husband's life. Get me out of the house. (laughs) So I was hired as a supplemental employee. And I was just so thrilled to be back to working environment and learn how the big company operates. And there was quite a few big surprises, right? You cannot knock on the door of your colleague because your colleague may be miles away or even in a different country. Mm -hmm. You have to schedule meetings in advance, which means you have to plan projects in advance, not just fly by the seat of your pants, because otherwise you will be scheduling meetings with a week apart and you will never get to the goal. There were lots of other things that I've learned. And I spent the next 13 years in IBM year. And I got from a supplemental employee to vice president in a pretty record time. But I always focused on two types of the projects on either very fast scale up, like IBM Life Sciences, one of the most successful startups in IBM history, or the project that required turnaround to growth. When brand stumbled in a few markets, the growth stopped, the shares growth stopped. I would come in and help to figure out what we should be doing differently. I did my MBA in Colombia and while working and really, really enjoyed my journey. It was, it was a great journey. So I overall spent with IBM almost 20 years. And I was at the moment of my life when I was thinking about my next position. And of course, IBM has certain rules about how often you can move and where. And I wanted to go to a software division, but there was a lack of women executives in the hardware division. So I was persuaded to stay there and I was much less excited about that. And at that time, I also was at the time when I negotiated my salary because I was paid less than most of my employees because I grew Yeah. And you would appreciate that, Cassandra, as an HR professional, I was paid less because I progressed in my career very fast. And I started with a supplemental employee salary. Mm. So, and they promoted me very, very fast, right? I went from a supplemental employee in 97 to vice president in what, in certain years. So, and of course, there are many ranks in between. And every time they will promote me to the lowest point in the next rank. And it looked like a very big increase. 
but I was still the lowest paid direct and the lowest paid vice president and the lowest paid something else. Right. So when I finally gathered courage, you know, I had great results. I had great justification to do that. And I started negotiating it. The response from HR came saying, we promoted you so fast and you had so many big increases that we think your pay is fair. And I was very upset with that thinking, well, Maybe the fact that you promoted me so fast means that I'm so good, I should be paid mm -hmm. with other people at my level. So at that, but I was still very loyal to the company. But at this moment, a recruiter reached out and described an amazing position to me. And this is back to your question, what did you dream to do in childhood, right? Nobody in your childhood or university years says, I want to work on logistics, because very few people know what this. <laughs> so very true. when the recruiter described the position to me, $9 billion company, 1,500 people organization uh, directly uh, reporting to me that was in distress, repeatedly missing the goals, struggling with the commoditization, struggling with the bleeding talent and losing good people and going through four heads of sales. The title was chief commercial officer over three years. I was jumping up and saying, this is me. This is exactly what I do. I know how to create solutions, how to focus on profitability while creating customer value. I just wanted to know the name of the company. And the recruiter was smart enough not to tell it, not to name it until we had a meeting. And he completely justified, you know, the, he listened to my experience. He thought you were the right person for the job, at least to put on the slate for the position. And he said, the company's name is Civil Logistics. And I asked, what is logistics? And mm -hmm. the best thing is it did not stop him, right? But, you know, for many years when I sold the server, it kind of materialized in the right space, right? And of course, now, 10 years later, I know very well what it takes, how much labor and effort and talent and sweat and stress of so many people it takes to get that server from that plant and to that data center. So long story short, the CEO said, I have 50,000 people who know logistics very well. All the other candidates on the slate were male and most important, had 15, 20 years in logistics experience. But I had the experience in different things, in managing global accounts while executing mm -hmm. local, locally, in forecasting sales using CRM, in structuring sales compensation to send the right behavior. And he said, if you are game to learn supply chain, let us try it because you have the skills that nobody has and I think that if you could do a PhD in online differential equations, you probably can learn supply chain. I was game. I was absolutely delighted to learn about supply chain because it was something very real, something very objective, something you can touch. The box either arrives there on time or not. It's very mm -hmm. different from sitting in a conference room and discussing which message will hit the audience the best, right? It's very specific and it makes an impact on so many people. And most of all, when people look at the boxes, I see bits and bytes of information, right? So I was also very intrigued when I started digging into the logistics space and learning shipping and contract logistics and spending time in warehouses and distribution centers and shipping facilities. I was stunned by how much this industry is behind on using technology. But that industry has other things to teach people. I never forget when I was interviewing, they showed me a very well-run data center. And today I understand that it was a marvel of its own. But at that point, I could not really appreciate it because I've never been to a warehouse before. 
So this distribution center did some amazing innovative work on phones, packaging, and other things. And they said, we'll show you one of our best innovations. This is this yellow bar that goes across the docking door. And it's used to show the driver when they can move out or move in. Because of that, the drivers do not smash the truck into the dock door. And we avoid paying 20,000 euro per break. And the bar only costs 200 euros. And of course, I came from the environment where innovation meant speeds and energy savings and great interfaces. But then I realized the level of return on investment in this 200 euro is amazing. They used to lose three doors a year before they implemented it. So that's actually something I need to understand. And I learned about process innovation and lean and what the black belts do, changing the Mm -hmm. process and how amazing it can be and really develop the appreciation for enormous amount of work and innovation that supply chain professionals do in every aspect of supply chain from planning to replenishments and assortments to shipping to packaging, right? All of this requires quite a lot of work and it's really interesting to understand that well. But I was missing IT. So after a few years and surviving three CEOs in the company, I went to combine two of my passions, shipping and technology. And I became the president and CEO of Intra. And I think back to your question, When I wanted to become the CEO, it was not until I became the C-level, the chief commercial officer, and started actually working for a CEO that I started thinking, you know, I can learn to do that. Mm -hmm. I understand what I need to learn. I cannot do what he does now, but I can learn a lot of those things. And that's such a rewarding job because you can make such a big impact, both in business and investors' lives and also in your company and employees' life. And that's what really inspired me. And I started seeking those positions. So when I left Siva and went to work for Intra, it was difficult for me to land a CEO job after the CMO job. My observation is that women are rarely promoted into the CEO job without prior experience. They usually go through internal promotion. A lot of women CEOs that I know today, either the founders of the company or grew up in the company and were promoted within the company. So the CEO and president job was fantastic for me because it brought me to PL role. And mm-hmm. this is where I managed not just sales and marketing, but product and technology development and services and uh, strategic alliances. And it allowed me to get a very good knowledge of operations and KPIs and key criteria to look at and financial planning. And uh, lots of other aspects, including uh, regular participation in the boards and communicating with investors. And that was a great training for my next step. Then in my next step, when Intra was sold and it was a very successful exit, I became CEO and shortly after the CEO of Tenten Data, which was my previous company. And then we did some great things there in data analytics for retail space until my current investors called and convinced me to join Tools Group. Wow, that's a powerful story. So a few things I took from there. One, your grandfather was a physicist, invested time in you from playing chess to making sure that, you know, you were pursuing what people used to call hard discipline, STEM or STEAM as we call them now. You graduated summa cum laude, got a PhD. They were like, oh, you know what? Let me add an Ivy League MBA in English (laughs) by going to Columbia. 
and you've been in the C-suite for a number of years over a number of organizations. You're doing things that now companies are trying to invest in women to do. And you were doing that from 96 forward. So in seeing some of what's been going on, especially at the start of the pandemic, lots of social justice movements going around and making sure that we see women leaving the workforce, what are some of the lessons that you had to learn almost as an individual that you would wish that other companies could adopt? Because you've done it. You've accomplished a very, very hard road. And one of the, my favorite things you said was you went to HR and was like, hey, if you see me succeeding, I shouldn't be penalized for how fast I'm succeeding, right? I should be honored and that should reflect not just in my bank account, but also in my title. So what advice would you give to other companies who are trying to bring women to the forefront and into these senior level roles? Cassandra, is it true people and talent professionals? I think you picked up on one thing. If I had only one thing to say, it's exactly what you picked up. You own your career. You cannot rely on anyone, on the company, on recruiters, on mentors, on sponsors, on parents, on spouses. You have to own your career. And owning your career comes with tough choices and tough decisions and tough negotiations, right? But you have to own it, take responsibility for it. You have to accept that it will have ups and downs. You have to accept that it will have a lot of falling down. And every time you fall down, you have to get up and pick up yourself up and find the next step. I think an interesting thing that you've mentioned, which is STEM discipline. What I guess I was lucky is that nobody told my grandfather that girls were not supposed to be good in math, right? It mm -hmm. was assumed that there was not a choice. But I think that our society, and especially, believe it or not, American society and some of the Western European societies, disadvantages uh, women by the way we bring the girls up, right? We tell the girls not to take the risk. We say, boys be boys, they fight, they take risks, they travel. We penalize girls for getting the dress dirty or playing aggressively. And as a result, that inserts the values very, very early that things may not be equal, that you may not be good in things, that you should not be taking risks. Mm. And I think risk taking is a paramount for a successful career. And you have to know that not all of your risks will pan out. You will have ups and downs. Switching from a very successful career in IBM to logistics company may have sounded very interesting and fun and lucrative. But please see the other side. It was associated with enormous risks. I was changing industry. I was joining the company headquartered in Europe. So I had to fly a lot. Every at least 50, 75% of my time was travel between spending time at the headquarters and seeing customers. I had to go to a completely different industry and very male-dominated industry. Only 13% of my organization were, was women. And I'm wow. talking about 1,500 people. And worse, most of those women were trapped in the lowest uh, parts of organization. By the time I left that organization, we had several women on the executive level, on the senior VP and EVP level. But a lot of it is really was not natural. We established women's network, and I was very active in helping women in organization in general. My door was open. I had situations when a pregnant woman came to me and said she was denied a promotion because she was she got pregnant and I helped her resolve that situation. So it was not an easy situation. It was not about just being different. I never cared about being different. I'm different by definition. I have an accent and different background. But it was about coming to the industry with different norms and having to establish yourself and your expertise every day. 
And of course, when I went to meet the salespeople for the first time, they would say, well, you're from IT. What do you know about logistics? So I actually had to work very hard to learn Mm. what they were doing and to sound professional and not to assume that my title will open the doors, right? But rely on my expertise and my growing knowledge of logistics to do it. I was greatly supported in that, my CEO. So another very important point is find a mentor, find someone who can give you good advice. And do not hesitate to ask for advice and have as many mentors as you can. It doesn't have to be a formal mentorship relationship. He became more of my formal mentor only when he left the company. And I sent him a note saying, well, could you be my mentor now that you're not my CEO? And I think it's the only time we mentioned the word mentor in our relationship, but we have been in touch. And even when I changed the job last time, right, he endorsed it and he Mm -hmm. went through a long list of questions with me. And it's always great to have an advice of someone experienced. But he taught me quite a few things. He taught me to look at the number of women at different layers on your organization. And wherever that number reduces sharply, this is where you have the cliff. And it would be in different places in different organizations. And if you want to really increase the number of women, it's not about making speeches. It's about understanding why at this level you reduce the number of women. Is it the flexibility of work? Is it the way you run promotions? Is it that you hire mostly externally for those roles and you do not have enough skills and enough of a pipeline? I actually promoted someone two levels up and I never regretted doing it. She became a top performer. So there's different ways to do it. And that's what he taught me. He also advised me to spend two days a month in operations. So I dutifully went through the package in an air site to see how the package is processed and checked and how the address is stamped and how the system is working. And I did the same in ocean shipping and distribution houses and warehouses and distribution centers. I looked at how inventory management is done, how conveyor is being designed by our industrial engineers. And it helped me to raise my own knowledge and expertise and level of confidence, but also understand what can we do better, right? And how we can sell our expertise better. So that's another lesson, right? Get your mentors. But also remember, it's on you to do the hard work. Mm -hmm. And you can never rely on your agenda to make you special. Whatever your agenda is, you have to rely on your expertise and results, right? And getting those hard learnings. I think those are the main things I would recommend. No, I love it. Own your career. One, you should put a (laughs) t-shirt, make a t-shirt with that statement. One of the things that I say to people is that you're the CEO of your life. You get to decide whether who you fire. I don't look at it as waiting for, like you said, my company to decide and determine my destiny. What are the things that I want? And sometimes you can't verbalize it. Like you said, when you were graduating, you thought you were going to be a math professor. You didn't think you'd be a CEO. But the skills that and determination and discipline that you needed to be able to make that happen is transferable. And you just kept taking those risks. I love that you said that. So to speak about risk-taking, logistics, supply chain, I would say maybe even like three years ago, this might have been a topic where people are like, I've heard of these words, but they're a little murky. During the height of the pandemic, we know that there was a lot of issues around supply chain. People were unable to get baby food, to get lumber. It became an, an enormous cost. Inflation, I remember a ship being stuck in a canal. So supply chain came to the forefront, but it was almost like this constant negative way of blaming why people just didn't have the resources they need. So tell me more about Tools Group and how supply chain management affects every single person pretty much on the face of the earth. One of the reasons I joined Tools Group as a CEO 
was because it combined two of my greatest passions, artificial intelligence and supply chain management optimization. And there is no better place to be for the next few years than supply chain because every single supply chain has to be rewired and redesigned in the next probably three to five years to go from the cost center to the differentiation of the company and source of revenue, to come from optimizing on costs to optimizing from outside in, getting external signals and processing and reacting very, very fast. We all dreamed of intelligent supply chain, and we had those discussions for years in the industry. The supply chain that senses the changes in demand and reacts fast. But the pandemics and all the events of the last several years made us come closer to that vision in every aspect of it, starting mm -hmm. with the supply chain planning, which is what Tools Group is doing, and optimization of inventory with the help of artificial intelligence, which is what we're doing today. Our mission, the way we define, is to make supply chain the force for good. We think that supply chain should not be something people hate for the absence of goods on shelves and rising costs, but it should be the way to get the right products and the right amounts to the right places and to do this sustainably without a lot of waste. If you underplan your inventory, you may have your plant stopping or get empty shelves. But when you overplan your inventory, it's equally very bad because not only the company locks huge working capital in excess inventory, and especially mm -hmm. the location, it means very high interest on that capital, but it also means that the company, especially retailers, start discounting goods and eventually even sending them to the landfills. So eliminating waste in the system and keeping customers trust that they can find products is very, very important. We did a survey of the customers in our key segments, fashion, home goods, electronics, parts. And what we found that depending on the segment, between 27 and 35% of customers lose trust in their brand. And we also found that over 20% of customers, if they don't find the product on shelf, go to the shop of another chain. So that's very important, right? That's very important for the retailers to understand. That's very important for manufacturers and distributors to understand. And we use our products and also our great expertise in supply chain and retail planning to help customers to eliminate or reduce uh, the effect of the bullwhip effect, the fact that small changes in sales usually result in much bigger changes in operations, in deliveries, but unfortunately much bigger changes, right? So your change in sales may have subsided, but now you have over delivery or under delivery and keeping the service levels right. Yeah, that's interesting. So how were you able to use your values? Because I know your company's values are innovation, passion for excellence, collaboration, reliability. How are you able to use those values to guide you through some of the toughest supply chain issues, I think, ever over these last three years? So I've seen companies who publish their values and put them off the wall and you ask anyone who cannot even recite them. Mm -hmm. And most important, they say our value is teamwork and yet they backstab each other. Don't they say our value is innovation and yet they have not launched a single product in a year or started any new development. At Tools Group, I found a company that truly, truly lives its value. And I was blessed to find such a company because it's a company of engineers and data scientists, and it has a great focus on doing things pragmatically and non-politically. 
in my past organizations, I've done a lot of things to eliminate politics. In fact, one of the things my mentor told me was, anyone starts sending you notes behind your colleagues' back and says, oh, this Peter is not doing things right. Peter does things bad. Unless it's the situation that requires a child intervention, sexual harassment, discrimination. If it's just a business issue and you have different understanding of what's right and not, your response should be copy both people and say, you guys should talk. You have to eliminate any kind of the backdoor politics. And I was very lucky to find the tools group doesn't have it, right? So that was the great thing. So when we talk about collaboration, I have great examples of people teaming across multiple functions in multiple countries to help the customer execute on a very complex project and get great results. Innovation. There was one exercise you told me that you do with your executives. Can you share that? Like how you also prepare them to lead within the organization? My favorite, my Pikachu story. I do this exercise (laughs) with every new executive team I take on. I think one of the very important aspects of the organization, especially in organization and transformation, right? And I came to Tools Group to transform it for more aggressive growth and implement a lot of best business practices and grow talent. And I brought some new talent, right? And that, of course, creates some stress and fear in organization. So very important thing is to have an organization without fear. And one of the first steps in that is making sure that if you bring a bad news to your manager, the manager reacts in a way that makes you comfortable. I've seen a lot of executives who hear bad news and they go, oh my God, seriously. And for them, they just have a human reaction. But for the person on the other side of the phone or the table or the screen, they feel like they're punished as a messenger, right? They just brought Mm -hmm. the bad news. And they saw this very negative energy coming in them. So one of the first things I always teach my executive team is how do you take bad news? Because no business exists without bad news. That's virtually impossible, no matter how successful you are. So this is how the game goes. Traditionally, the game is played with a ball. When I first time I played it, I did not have a ball, but I had a big, nice, fluffy toy, a Pikachu. So we used Pikachu and later it became a saying in the company. So I liked it so much, I brought it further. So first, you throw the Pikachu to the next person. And the rule is everyone stands, you know, in a a round Mm -hmm. circle at one of the executives off sites. And it's nice to stretch your legs and stand in a circle and play something. And the rule is you have to say, Peter, this is Pikachu. And Peter should say, Ina, thank you very much for sending me the Pikachu. And then Peter sends it to David. And David says, Peter, thank you for sending me Pikachu. And it goes and round and round. And it's very easy. But the main rule is you have to remember to always say, this is the Pikachu. And then John or Jane or Diane says, thank you for sending me the Pikachu. And then you play the second round. And it's not a Pikachu anymore. It's a bad news. And you send it to the head of HR and say, Joe, we just had this and this person resign. And he should say, Ina, thank you for letting me know that these people resigned. Or you send it to the head of sales and say, their big account just told us they're not renewing the deal. And you should say, Ina, thank you very much for letting me know that they're not renewing the deal. And you play it until it becomes an automatic response. The great news is people enjoy playing it because it's almost superstitious thing, getting all our fears out. And you want a great scare for your teammate. But when you think about it seriously, it creates a few very important moments. First of all, you call the person by name. You acknowledge that person. 
and it's important. And you thank that person for bringing the bad news to you. So next time that person has a bad news, he or she would not hesitate to come to you with the bad news because they know you would not scream in anger, but you will thank them. You're buying yourself a few seconds to think, right? Because our initial reaction is run or hide or scream. But our next reaction is usually, okay, I need to know more details. Is it the final decision? Have you talked to these people? Can I talk to these people? Is there anything we can change? What are the details? What are the dates or the amounts? And you're buying yourself a few seconds to actually get your thoughts together and ask all those questions. And suddenly, instead of a very scary conversation for an employee, you have a very productive exchange. So when I played that game first time with my executive team, they adopted the name of Pikachu for a bad news. It, was actually, <laughs> it actually became even easier because someone will come call me and say, you know, so-and-so just sent Pikachu my way. And it was almost easier than to say, Ina, we have a technical problem with the account. So but that was fun. But I always, I very much recommend to play that game. It's, it's fun. Yeah, I will definitely give you credit the first time I do it, but the second time I'll be like, this is something I always do with all my years. Absolutely. I did not invent the game, so no, no need for a credit. Just do some good. Okay. Well, Ina, as we close out this conversation, I feel like there's so much that we covered. What is one of the things that you can see yourself leaving as a legacy as we think about the future of work and how things need to be innovated, how things are going to AI and future and tech? How do you see everything that you've accomplished, the stories that you've learned, the risks that you've taken, good and bad, learning from them? What is the legacy that you want to leave behind, not just for Tools Group, but for the entire arc of your career? I have two best-selling books in Russian about the career development. And in fact, one of them was even republished 10 years later because of its popularity. So I've never got to writing the English versions. Maybe sometime I will. I just never had time for that. But I think that a lot of learnings that I package may help people who come after me, right? I don't want to be the talking woman in the C-suite. I don't want to Mm. be the talking woman CEO. I'm tired of being the only CEO woman on the CEO panels. So I think if I can help the next generation to make one mistake less or get something a little bit easier, that's the best legacy I can leave. I like the legacy of creating value. Every time I turn a company for growth or less uh, losses or improving profitability, every time I touch careers and help people to grow and develop, It's a long-lasting legacy, right? It's a long-lasting legacy for business environment, for investors, for employees. And I think that's one of the best things. And of course, children are our legacy. I have one child and my daughter is the CTO co-founder in a startup. And that's also my legacy, right? So I think we'll leave some good things behind us, but I hope I have more time to think, more time before I have to think for the legacy. (laughs) And in the long run, If I can bring more technology into supply chain and help to eliminate waste and reduce mundane jobs and make supply chains more effective, I'll be very proud of it. I think you're already changing the game, just even by just you being where you are today and other people can see that. So thank you so much for your time. This was an amazing conversation. And I know that anyone who listens will take a lot from it. So thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity, Cassandra. Thank you for listening to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, 
the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us.